She has that tremendous talent, which you and I keep acknowledging, and give her a small role and, and she'll steal the scene, she'll make the most of it, but she's not getting the starring roles. That's significant. I keep saying she's a supporting player, you know, which is fine, but she should have been a leading lady at some point. And she knew that on stage. Think about it on stage. You know, in Sweeney Todd as Mrs. Lovett, she owns that role. It's one of the great, all-time great Broadway performances, I think. But other things on Broadway, like Mame and Gypsy and all, she's very much the star. She's center stage. But then she goes to Hollywood or returns to Hollywood periodically and here she is as, you know, the daffy, old, you know, kind of daffy old mother character or something or domineering mother, whatever. In any event, a maternal figure. And she's in a handful of scenes and, and yeah, she's terrific. But then, you know, she disappears for a half hour from the screen. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Angela Lansbury, who we have just recently lost and who had an illustrious career that spanned seven or eight decades. And, you know, it's a trajectory that hardly ever happens to anybody. I mean, she grew up in England. She and her mom fled the Blitz. Her father had passed when she was nine. They ended up in New York, finally made their way to Los Angeles. And she's wrapping gifts in a department store when, you know, someone tells her she should go you know, try out for this role. And she ends up going in to read for the picture of Dorian Gray, but instead they wanted to go meet George Cooker because he's going to be making a movie called Gaslight. So at 17 years old, she ends up playing across from Ingrid Bergman and she gets an Academy Award nomination for that role. That is an incredible way to start a career, Mike. How often does that ever happen? Well, what strikes me about Angela Lansbury in particular is when people talk about the greatest generation, that World War II generation that we're losing now, think about it in terms of show business, that she really was one of the last survivors of that from the Hollywood uh, golden age, if you will. And how remarkable that when she came to the U.S., as Marie just mentioned, you know, escaping the Blitz in London. I mean, she's off, you know, she died at the age of 96. And, and so think in terms of Queen Elizabeth, in terms of the life that she had during World War II. And Angela Lansbury herself, you know, having experienced the war firsthand like that. And then providentially in uh, getting away from the war, it got her to Hollywood and at a very young age. So, you know, in her late teens, she, you know, she's making movies. The thing I'd want to really emphasize through all that is that with Angela Lansbury, it's a remarkably long career. And moreover, in several media, that's what makes it really notable, I think. She was a star in Hollywood, not the biggest star, more of the supporting character, supporting roles, but, you know, very much a, a Hollywood figure for decades. Also, of course, in television, as we'll talk about in a while, she had her role that brought her the biggest audience she ever had. I mean, most public recognition for her, you know, owes to the, the television role that we'll talk about presently. But then thirdly, and I think on a personal level, most importantly, she had a theater presence. I think she's one of the, no, it's not, I think I know that she's one of the, the major figures in, in theater history particularly musical theater. And I think, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm ranking these, that somehow one is more important than the other, but I suppose I am in a way that I think her ultimate importance among film, television, stage is stage. I think that's where she really was most impressive. On a very personal level, I actually saw her perform once. I saw the Broadway production, the original Broadway production of Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, where she plays Mrs. Lovett. 
And it was fabulous. It was back in 1979 in New York, and she was great. And, you know, moreover, won the Tony Award for that. So let me quickly, while we're running down some numbers here in terms of her age and in terms of various other things, speaking of awards, and I think this actually does speak to her overall career, she won six Tony Awards, the one I mentioned for Sweeney Todd in 79. But then, you know, she won a total of five competitive Tony Awards. And then her sixth Tony was was an, an honorary one. So very few performers. You're, you're looking at, you know, Julie Harris and one or two other people who are anywhere near that in terms of what they accumulate. But speaking of awards, and I think this is telling, actually, she was nominated for three Academy Awards, all as Best Supporting Actress. As Marie's been mentioning, Gaslight, a picture of Dorian Gray, and then some years later, 62, Ensuring Candidate. So her breakthrough roles in, in the mid-40s immediately get recognition. The Ensuring Candidate, arguably her most important film role, but she doesn't win any of those categories. And we're going to return to this, the fact that she was always being nominated as Best Supporting Actress and not winning. She finally did receive an Honorary Academy Award in 2013. Sometimes that's how they handle the honorary awards, essentially a lifetime achievement. We never gave you one in competitive terms, but we give you an honorary one. The most famous and notorious example would be like Alfred Hitchcock or something where, you know, you never want a competitive one as director, but here, we'll give you the special one. And so anyway, that's kind of a mixed blessing to get the honorary award at, at that point. But it's telling there, and we're going to return to this, the fact that, you know, she's a supporting actress, nominated, but not not winning, in some ways kind of taken for granted, not top rank in terms of Hollywood stars, but always there, if you will. Now, this is what I find even more telling in a way. As we talk about her most famous role from a public perspective in terms of audience size in television, she was nominated 18 times for an Emmy Award. She never won. Uh, can you imagine if you go to the ceremony year after year and you're always being nominated and you're never winning? There's something kind of odd about that. But she was a trooper. And I mean, this is a great compliment. She would just keep working. You know, she always could go and she could go from one medium to another. She could go from, uh, you know, Hollywood film to a Broadway production to her recurring TV roles and just segue like that. And very few actors have had that much fluidity in going from medium to medium. And finally, before I, I turn it back over to Marie, she truly was beloved. I know that's a cliche and people use it all the time when someone passes, but she truly was. Nobody ever had a bad word to say about her. She was a thorough professional and she was just really good at what she did. And people always spoke with great admiration of what it was like to work with her. So with that, I turn it back over to you. Well, I have to say that I love what she says about herself was that she was always an actress and not a pretty face, that she is a character actress. But when you look at the roles that she's had, she's been the leading lady in lots of production. And of course, she has that amazing career on Broadway. But she also has these great stories to tell. I like we were discussing very briefly, you know, escaping the Blitz, ending up in, in Hollywood, ending up across Ingrid Bergman in your first movie and then being nominated for an Oscar. The next movie you make, you're also nominated for an Oscar. That can go to your head when you're 17 years old, especially when you're now the breadwinner. You're very important. You're in the public eye. Everybody's taking photographs of you and judging everything that you do. Somewhere in there, there is the story of her family where her kids started getting into drugs and her daughter ended up meeting Charles Manson. So she decides to uproot the whole family and go to Ireland where she stays for a while. And then when she comes back, she decides, you know, she'll do some some theater work instead. There's there's an underlying pragmatic side to her that makes her feel like 
you know, somebody that you already know that's very down to earth, not a movie star, just a regular, sensible person. And that kind of is, I think, the underlying Angela Lansbury thing that everybody loves about her. But Mike, I want to get your Angela Lansbury story after I tell mine, which is I knew her from Murder, She Wrote, which was on, you know, like 12 seasons or something, where she plays a woman who's been widowed and is suddenly a mystery writer and becomes renowned. And it gives her this opportunity to solve all of these mysteries from, you know, in this serial. And she deliberately took it on because she wanted to avail herself of the huge audience that you get when you are, when you do TV. Theater, even though it's probably the most prestigious, you reach the fewest amount of people. TV is just, it's almost hard to explain the difference in viewership that you get. And if you're on a show for 12 seasons, you know, you really build up a following. But just to sort of underscore that sort of every man, every woman aspect to her, she was really good friends with B. Arthur throughout their careers. And B. Arthur said that she swore like a longshoreman. And you can sort of believe it. So anyway, I, I discovered her through Murder, she wrote. And then, you know, going back to watch old movies people have told me about, I'm watching Gaslight with my husband and he says, oh my God, look at this. Angela Lansbury is a tart. And I just thought it was such a great moment in where you don't realize until you start looking at old movies, the long career that some people have had. And I will say, Mike, that preparing for the show, I went back to the back of the rack to watch as much Angela Lansbury stuff as I could. And I have watched 20 movies. So how did you first come across her, Mike? Well, again, I knew the classic Hollywood films like Gaslight and Picture Dorian Gray. And in fact, once years ago, I hosted a tribute to Herd Hatfield, who has the, the main role in Picture of Dorian Gray. And we did it in the Baltimore Museum of Art Auditorium. He was in Baltimore making a movie, not a very good one, but he was in Baltimore. And as was the director of that film, Bruce Beresford, the Australian director. So at the BMA, I was, you know, I was the host on stage, so I was introducing Beresford and Hatfield and so on. And then we watched Picture of Dorian Gray. And during the audience Q&A, a lot of discussion, including from Hurd himself, had to do with, you know, here's here's the very young Angela Lansbury. She's a teenager, basically. And here she is, you know, in, in a major Hollywood film and she's getting, you know, an Oscar nomination and so on. So, I mean, I was aware of her much earlier than that from when, as a kid, I would see films like Gaslight and so on. But I want to double down on, on this in terms of that she had a, a large audience in various mediums, as we've been saying. But as Marie pointed out, if you're in a successful TV show like Murder, She Wrote, you know, 1984, 1996, all those Emmy nominations, okay, not winning, but all those nominations and all that acclaim, in one night, one Sunday night of people watching that show, more people would have seen her than would have seen her in the entire Broadway run of a you know fabled show that got her Tony Awards and so on. So that's a given in terms of audience size. In terms of aesthetic importance, I'm, and I'm not speaking against Murder, She Wrote whatsoever. I love the way that she herself, Lansbury, would describe her as sort of a, an American Miss Marple, that it was, it, it was, you know, Agatha Christie type material, but put into very much a New England context. And Lansbury herself, because she lived in the U.S. for all, almost all of her life, could lose the, the British accent. You know, she could play all sorts of things. But the point I really want to double down on is, is this. That on television, of course, she was the star of that. I mean, and, and eventually in that series, something we haven't mentioned yet, 
she was the executive producer. And she ended up making, I mean, this this is an estimate, but maybe as much as $100 million from having, you know, actually produced that show as well as star in it. And she was kind of nervous from week to week, because think about it, if you're a business person, you're not just the star of it, it's your enterprise, and you, you better have a good guest on this week, or you better have a successful episode. She probably worried more than she should have, but it was that burden of knowing that she was keeping the books, let's put it that way, as well as learning her lines of dialogue. But the essential doubling down has to do with this, that, okay, she's the star of that TV show. And she does a lot of other TV work, actually, going back to the 1950s. I mean, all sorts of almost now forgotten programs that she'd be a guest star on or, you know, visiting somehow. And so that meant a lot to her. But the fact that in Hollywood, she was very much a supporting player. She was very much a character actress. Yes, she's really great in Gaslight. Yes, she's really great in Picture of Dorian Gray. And she's incredibly great in Manchurian Candidate, which I can't wait to talk about some more. But the fact that those are all supporting roles, okay, that's important to keep in mind. And this is the really crucial thing. By the late 1940s, Marie and I have been talking about how young she was, 17, 18 years old, you know, and, and playing a tart or playing whatever, but playing versatile roles at that point, making a great impression in sometimes just a few scenes. But you know what? She was under a seven-year contract to MGM. I will call it a mixed blessing because we've mentioned really just two or three of her famous roles from the mid to late 40s. She made about another dozen or so pictures for MGM, most of them totally forgettable. And this was incredibly frustrating for her because she was still only getting supporting roles. Now, there are, there are a few reasons for that. One would be at that point, she's a Brit. And what do we do with her in an American film? You know, they're still sort of wrestling with that issue. And whether it, it, they should or not, they, they were. Secondly, the fact that she did not have, and I'll, I'll put this kind of politely, that, that she didn't have the conventional good looks that would make like automatically a Hollywood star. She had strong physical features, I would say. But typically, if, if and I'm relying on stereotypes here, if, if you're a casting director, and you're thinking about who to play a role, you're probably not going to put her in the lead. She'd be the, the the smart sidekick character. She'd be the supporting player one way or another. And that hurt her. And this is the really crucial point. The fact that by the late 1940s, they had her playing roles where the character was much older than she actually was at that point. So the cruel irony was, here's this woman who's essentially barely a woman. She's in her mid to late teens. By her early 20s, she was playing uh, you know, the mother of other characters and so on. And the most notorious example of that would be actually by the time she does Manchurian Candidate in 1962, she plays one of the monster mothers of all time, right? And it's really such a terrific performance. But, you know, Lawrence Harvey, the star of the film, you know, he's playing her son. So bear in mind that here's you know, Angela Lansbury is the mother and he's playing the son. She was only three years older <laughs> than he was. So think about that as actors go that, you know, here, here's this actor who's just three years older than the, the male lead and she's playing his mother. And she in interviews has said that it was always very frustrating for her. She, not only was she not playing the leading lady, she was playing the old lady to put it in kind of blunt terms. And, you know, she's great at that, but, you know, you get typecast. And those were the kinds of roles she was being offered. So that partly explains why, even though she has a long Hollywood career, she was happy to get out of the MGM contract. And there really were not a lot of movie roles after that. I mean, she kept appearing in movies and we're going to mention a number of them, but she was not the most prolific screen presence. And she found her salvation initially on, on stage, doing the musical theater, doing straight plays as well. And then ultimately, as we've been saying in terms of mass audience, yes, the television role. I mean, that's what she's ultimately most remembered for. Well, she said this about becoming Jessica Fletcher. She said this was the sort of woman she might have been if she hadn't become an actress. And I love that because there's something very genuine about her portrayal of that character. But I think she's an actor's actor. 
you know, she has appeared in so many different kinds of roles, most of them not caring or seeming to care about, you know, how good she looked. Now, I'll say that I thought in the picture of Dorian Gray, she was absolutely luminous. And it was partly the way that was lit with soft lighting when they featured her with her big eyes. She looked beautiful. She looked like Bernadette Peters in that. But then, you know, going back to look at her other movies that I had not seen, some of them I had seen, but like not noticed her in them. One was, you know, her playing the sister in um, National Velvet, where she remember Elizabeth Taylor. And, you know, then she plays off of Judy Garland in The Hardy Girls. And then you know, she plays against Margaret O'Brien in 10th Avenue Angel. And she plays against James Garner and Mr. Budwing and against Sophia Loren and against Lauren Beatty. I mean, she's just played against all kinds of people without having to push her way into the front and, you know, overdo it and make sure you see her. She's just like this solid presence that will take the character actor's part and really give it a strong grounding. I think that's her genius. Yeah, but imagine the frustration of that. She has that tremendous talent, which you and I keep acknowledging, and give her a small role and, and she'll steal the scene, she'll make the most of it, but she's not getting the starring roles. That's significant. I keep saying she's a supporting player, which, you know, which is fine, but she should have been a leading lady at some point, and she knew that on stage. Think about it on stage. You know, in Sweeney Todd as Mrs. Lovett, she owns that role. It's one of the great, all-time great Broadway performances, I think, but other things on Broadway like Mame and Gypsy and all, she's very much the star. She's center stage, but then she goes to Hollywood or returns to Hollywood periodically, and here she is as, you know, the daffy, you know, kind of daffy old mother character or something or domineering mother, whatever. In any event, a maternal figure. And she's in a handful of scenes. And, and yeah, she's terrific. But then, you know, she disappears for a half hour from the screen. Think how frustrating that had to be for an actor. Now, she's a thorough professional. She does the job and she takes the roles and she keeps working. And if she gets frustrated in one medium, she goes to another one. And, and I, I admire her so much for that. But through it all, I always felt that, you know, she could have been one of the great Hollywood stars, but with Hollywood stereotypes, if you will, she didn't have the looks that they they wanted. She didn't have quite the image they wanted for a leading lady. So she gets to play the mother of the leading lady. Well, let's talk about the Manchurian Candidate, because this is one of those roles that the only other actor I can think of doing it would be Meryl Streep, who's also very facile at going, you know, back and forth with different kinds of roles. Maybe I'm not going to be great looking in this one, but, you know, it's going to be a real meaty role. And let's glance off of the fact that she plays kind of the same similar society-like mother in pearls, Pat Nixon hairstyle in Blue Hawaii as Elvis's mother. And then, of course, she plays this amazing character in The Manchurian Candidate. Like, what do you want to say about that? Well, there's one mother we haven't mentioned yet somehow, since she gives the roster of maternal roles in the film Harlow in 1965, all about the actress Jean Harlow. She plays the mother to the main uh, actor in it, Carol Baker, who, of course, is Harlow in it. So that comes actually just three years after Manchurian Candidate. So you see how she's being fit into a box like that, that, uh, again, was so vexing in some ways. But the thing about Manchurian Candidate is it's and I've used that film a number of times in courses or just to talk about it, because it's one of the great Cold War paranoia pictures. It's so much about, you know, a Korean War setting and, and you know, stories that were coming out of, of the war about American soldiers being brainwashed and so on. And particularly that that 50s into early 60s fixation on that, you know, 
the communists have infiltrated us. They're taking over. They're taking over our minds. Even think, you know, in, in sci-fi terms, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where, you know, some alien forces come down and they've taken over your next door neighbor. But he still looks the same. He's mowing the grass. But is he really a communist somehow? I mean, all those metaphorical readings of a lot of sci-fi. Well, Manchurian Candidate is informed by that. And I have great admiration for John Frankenheimer, the director, because the film is so well made and so well cast. And as I said earlier, yeah, inherently frustrating that, you know, Angela Lansbury, who's only three years older than Lawrence Harvey, gets to play his mother in Manchurian Candidate. But she's one of the all-time great monster mothers because, and what makes her so frightening is actually on the face of it. If you just like met her at a cocktail party, as Marie says, she's got the string of pearls, she's got perfect manners, she's upper crust society, everything prim and proper. But there's there's a, an edge to her. And, and just even before you know what you eventually know, you realize there's more going on here. There's something about her. And you realize how manipulative she is and just how powerful she is and really ruthless. She's scary in, in that film. And Angela Lansbury, you know, to her immense credit, does not want us to like her character. She wants us to hate her. And, and she she plays it so well that I really love how much uh, the, the, we hate her. You know, I mean, she, re she really gets to the core of that. And I can always watch that movie again because when she comes on screen, I just get nervous because she's so scary in it. She goes for it. Yeah, she really sinks her teeth into that role. She's absolutely unforgettable. I do want to mention, though, that she's also been very clever in some of the roles she's taken because a whole lot of youngsters got to know her in sort of, I think, a sneaky way. I mean, they think of her as, you know, Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast, where she plays a teapot. And, you know, not having to have a physical presence, but be a animated character, I think helps. Of course, she was the, the main witch in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which a lot of us saw back when it came out in 1971. And then, of course, Nanny McPhee, you know, she comes back in a, another movie made for children where she has an important role to play. It's a background role, but it's still like, who else would you want for that role except for Angela Lansbury? Let me add one more to the list. Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, right. And uh, Mr. Popper's right. Penguins. Yes, Mr. yes. Yes. How can we leave, how can we leave those out? But, we but see, again, a measure of her versatility that there are many children or former children who would know her for roles like that. I mean, I think, you know, Mrs. Potts, she was perfect, you know, vocally there. And, and you know, and of course, with her background in musical theater, give her a number to do. And, and again, here's the thing. She doesn't have one of the great voices in terms of the conventions of great singing, but she has a great character voice. She can really put across a song. And again, it's her skill as an actor who sings rather than a singer who, who can act or tries to. She's the actor first and foremost. So in terms of vocal talent, is Mrs. Potts, when I was watching that film, I was seeing Angela Lansbury. I mean, I sing it through the voice and, and I'm hearing that voice even as I talk right now. And the fact that that versatility extended to that kind of vocal work in animated films and other films that, as Marie says, are, are you know children's films. She didn't care that way. She wasn't thinking, oh, well, this is like a step down or something. No, she gave it her all. Again, the complete pro. I would also say that a lot of the things that she did kind of fed into that idea of her as sort of the Agatha Christie person, the Miss Marple, the Death on the Nile role, the, the Mirror Crat where she plays against Elizabeth Taylor, of all people. And Elizabeth Taylor, you can tell, really cares about how she is presented and the way she looks. And Angela Lansbury does not. For her, it's just a role to throw herself into. You don't get the sense that she feels bad about the fact that she's not shot better or lit better, because it's not about that for her. It's about the role. Just one more example of that that I thought was really 
great casting because the rest of the movie was just absolutely terrible was the remake of the lady vanishes with sybil shepherd in it and it's absolutely terrible except for her she makes the perfect miss Freud. you can see her being the unassuming woman on the train that nobody notices or only half notices she's perfect for that kind of role yeah, to pull together what we've been saying about her role as Jessica Fletcher in, in Murder, She Wrote, the prep work, if you will, you can see it in Death on the Nile, which is 1978, and then Mira Cracked in 1980, where she plays Miss Marple. This is like the groundwork for it. So by the time she does that TV series, she truly is the American Miss Marple, and she knows how to take that Christie character and totally transpose it and put it in a New England context and make it more American that way. Just as, you know, frankly, Angela Lansbury made herself more American when she needed to be. She could do that so readily. That's the mark of, of a great actor. She can totally do that. You know, she put behind her other roles and, and just her own biographical origins. She, she gets to play, you know, a totally believable New Englander who's, who's an, a, you know, a very gifted sleuth who really can, you know, ferret out the cases. And that's one reason why that show remains so popular. And that was a show that had a mostly older audience. And so here's while she's doing that with a mostly older audience following her, she's starting to do some of those, or continuing to do some of those what we call kiddie films, right? For, for a really young family type audience. She's doing that stuff simultaneously. That's really quite remarkable that she can go from medium to medium. And, you know, as she's doing that audience to audience, if you will. Now, when they were trying to cast Jessica Fletcher, they were looking for someone who was likable, not just could act likable, someone that exuded intelligence and was down to earth. And their first choice was Jean Stapleton, who I think also probably could have done a great job because she's an amazing actor too. But I think this was just absolutely meant for Angela Lansbury. I think she settled into it and you could tell she just enjoyed being that character. Well, you know what? I interviewed Jean Stapleton once and sure, we talked about All in the Family and other things. We also talked about her work as an opera singer and her wanting to branch out and do other things. I think Jean Stapleton would have been really good in that role. So I, we'll never know, but I think she would have been really good. But you know what? It's a moot point because once Angela Lansbury came aboard, it's hard to imagine anyone else in the role. You're absolutely right. You know, you, know, you do it for 12 years and it's yours, right? Who would want anyone else in it? But it is interesting in terms of backstories of, you know, and think about, you know, roles that, that were turned down. Angela Lansbury herself turned down some roles that she probably shouldn't have turned down. She was offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as Nurse Ratched, and she turned down. I think that was a mistake. I think she would have been fabulous as Nurse Ratched. But, you know, who's to speak against, you know, Louise Fletcher, who, you know, recently passed away and got the Academy Award for it. And, you know, when I, when I met her once, I thought she was really, you know, a great person as, as well as a considerable actor. But those are, them's the breaks, as they say, right? You know, you have your reasons for turning down a role and then somebody else gets the opportunity. And who could imagine anyone else in the role at that point? But I do like to imagine Angela Lansbury as Nurse Ratched. <laughs> that would be as frightening as an insuring candidate, wouldn't it, Marie? Like, she it would Oh, she'd be terrifying in that hospital. She would be. She would have been great in it. I think, though, it might that might have been a bad move because then she would have been just seen as, well, we need a heroine. Oh, get, you know, get Angela Lansbury. I think she could have been typecast. Like late period Joan Crawford or something, right? Yes, you know? exactly. Exactly. <laughs> she could have been Joan Crawford. But that does remind me of another role that I saw her in because I absolutely love Louise May Alcott and must have read Little Women a million times growing up. So I think I've seen every adaptation. And they did cast her as, you know, Aunt March, you know, the, the crabby, rich, impossible aunt. And again, she embodies that role beautifully without any sort of self-consciousness of, you know, here I am playing the older, cranky character. You know, she just sinks her teeth in and, and just enjoys herself. So at the end of uh, her career, she did an interview with the New York Times. 
and with the stipulation that they not air it until she had died. So since she has, they have released it. And this is what she said about her legacy. She said that she hoped that through her acting, she enabled people to get out of their own lives, to be transported into other areas of life that they otherwise would never have. I'd love to feel that I enabled people to do that. Life is so hard for many people. What a great person. What a loss for Hollywood. It's a great quote there because, you know, the essence for her was to get out of her own self and play other selves, other characters. And whether it's on stage or on the big screen or the small screen, you know, she gets to play all these different roles and just totally immerse herself in the role and and not try to be glamorous oftentimes, just to really play what that character should be. Let somebody else have the marquee, you know, fame that way. She's going to give a first rate performance. And and she just was a trooper that way. And, and, you know, into her 80s and 90s was still appearing in, 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 uh, you know, films and television on stage even. That's terrific. It is terrific. To our listeners, do you have an Angela Lansbury story or a favorite movie? Get in touch. Send us an email at movies at howardcc.edu. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next week at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.